Hey everybody, welcome. This is Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Viewers of the show know pretty much what we talk about. We talk about cannabis, early stage founders, early stage investors, sometimes lawmakers, people moving the movement forward. Uh, when I started the program, I would have never thought for one second that we would have anyone from law enforcement on our program. But as awesome as this industry is, I have been proved wrong once again. And today we are incredibly lucky and grateful to have the current sheriff and maybe soon to be reelected sheriff, Ross Mirakarimi. Did I say that right? You did. Thank I you. I did. Yes. One for me. Good job. One yes. for me. Absolutely. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Nice to yes. meet you. Yes. You're sitting down with me. You as well. So the first fact that I heard about you is that there are 58 uh, elected sheriffs in the state of California, 58 counties. 58 sheriffs. That's right. And you're the only one that supports the legalization of cannabis. That's correct. Yes. Why? Why, why, why should we legalize cannabis? Well, I've felt this way for decades. Uh -huh. And when I was a supervisor, a city councilman before I was elected sheriff, I actually wrote the law on behalf of San Francisco that decriminalized and legitimized the entire medical cannabis dispensary that was over 10 years ago. And that 88-page law became the template for many counties in California and over a dozen states in the United States. And then in 2006, I received the normal uh, National Organization of Reform Marijuana Laws, Hero of the Year Award. And I'm sure I'm the only sheriff in the United States that has that award hanging in his office, um, which I do in our sheriff's office. And I'm proud of that because I believe that the United States criminal justice system has been an abysmal failure uh, for over 50 years. And I think that that has been well propelled in its failure by the failed U.S. war on drugs. And I think that that resulted in the overbuilding of prisons and the puffing up the inflating of a criminal justice system that went in the wrong direction, uh, largely funded by narcotics prosecutions and incarceration. And then that dominoed into the municipal and county jail systems also being, I think, overbuilt. And when I decided to run as sheriff, and I have a law enforcement background, and I worked in the district attorney's office for nine years, that I ran to reform our criminal justice system. And I know San Francisco is seen as a very liberal and <clears throat> excuse me, progressive city to a lot of people, but we can do better. And that's why I've continued to push the envelope and stand out as a sheriff in the state of California to the other 57 sheriffs to say that I think legalization is the way to go. And frankly, I'd like to believe it's inevitable. Mm, I also think it's inevitable. Uh, how does that uh, change your role on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, how do, as a sheriff, how do you approach cannabis differently? Well, in San Francisco, we've been preparing for this for some years. So we don't incarcerate and rarely do, uh, I think, law enforcement prosecute for anybody for marijuana possession. They shouldn't anyway. And I wouldn't. That's the standing <clears throat> policy. And it has been there for years. And it has been. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there was recently last year a state proposition passed called 47, which had a big impact on other counties, but not San Francisco. And that was the reduction of a felony to misdemeanor narcotics charges, depending on volume and weight, et cetera. Um, but in San Francisco, we were already a Prop 47 type city, if you will. It didn't affect us in our jail population, and retroactively, it may have affected some of the population. But as sheriff, really, it's the philosophy that I put out there, 
uh, candidly that I don't want our jails really for substance abusers or misusers and certainly not for marijuana possession whatsoever. I can, if in fact that there's a violation of law and that the courts who do sentence people, we don't sense, we're the custodians, but I do have a voice in the courts of the criminal justice system as one of the top elected officials in this industry to say, <clears throat> well, we can do better by putting somebody through drug court or through a diversion program that is really a fraction of the cost of incarceration. And How much cheaper is it? Because I've heard that a lot, that you know, if you send them to rehab, it's actually cheaper and better. Well, incarceration in San Francisco is 63000 over $63,000 a year now. It's a cost prohibitive city, including in the jail system. And so uh, rehabilitation on a per year basis, anything under 10,000. Mm. Wow, dramatic. Really dramatic and the results are even better. Yeah. And I can show that through diversion and just holding people accountable, but not having to ruin their lives, destroy the lives around them as well, that we can just get much more cleaner, effective results. And we've proven that for over the years. So my administration, is now moving forward of, you know, we get to actually trumpet that I preside over the most undercrowded jail population in the United States. Mm. Uh, our capacity is almost 53% undercrowded mm -hmm. and our repeat offender rates, recidivism is uh, dropped the fastest of any city in the United States. And as a matter of fact, recently Harvard just came out and gave us really uh, only an award of its kind um, called the Innovation American Government Award to the only law enforcement agency in the country, us. Uh, I received it and a big check. And that is because we were able to demonstrate how our in-custody high school, not GED, but diploma high school, we have the first in the United States. And then my administration, our administration has developed a post-custody school in communities where they're underserved how we can correlate the metric of there being a dramatic drop in repeat offender rates. People are just not returning back to jail. Mm, mm. And I guess when people say here that you're pro-cannabis, right? Uh, I guess the question becomes, where do you make the distinction between cannabis and other potentially harder drugs, right? So uh, I, I know that you're pro-cannabis, right? But uh, on the streets, right, if you're not prosecuting someone that has a possession of cannabis, are you then prosecuting someone that has possession of a small amount of other? Well, that's up to the district attorney and it's up to the courts. But again, I insert my voice in this that if somebody is selling, which is different than using, yeah, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's a combination thereof. But across all borders of users on narcotics, then I think that that's a public health response. Maybe public safety and criminal justice has a role, but the reflex has been wrong for decades. The reflex by the government needs to be from a public health perspective and led basically with a treatment perspective. We can have a role in accountability, but the role of accountability should not be propelled by retribution. It should really be propelled by how we can help people if in fact that it is the help that they want to have. Now, if you're selling, and if you're selling to you know vulnerable populations like children you know youngsters or whomever and it's not within our regulations like medical cannabis for example mm -hmm. then that you know is a violation of law and that will be processed accordingly but really one of the you know leading motivations is going back many years is that marijuana cannabis should not be a class one uh, violation. And in the eyes of the feds, that is a grave injustice mm -hmm. that has just destroyed so many tens of thousands of lives over the last 40, 50 years, and that needs to be corrected. Mm. Yeah, no, I, exactly what I was going to bring up. I mean, what do you think that the federal government is missing 
that you so clearly see about the distinction of, of those votes? Well, you know, I'm heartened by some of the gestures I'm seeing both from the Democratic and Republican aisle. And it was just recently that President Obama was the first president, at least we know in modern history, to visit a prison, a federal prison, and speak out as boldly as he is speaking out. And it's been a long time coming for any president to do this about how disproportionate our incarceration system is and how that disproportion has really been fed by the um, misdirect of prosecuting and sentencing on narcotics offenses. Completely wrong. So. Um, as a municipal law enforcement official, then I stand with them in calling attention to just how backwards our laws have been and we should be pushing from the bookends of both the federal side and from the local side. But what I fear is that Congress moves way too slow and that in this country, um, opinions and attitudes are hardened, excuse me, by I think the years of just um, bias but I like to hear the, the both the libertarian and the Republican and the Democrat and the sort of independent coming together and saying it just hasn't been working. Mm -hmm. So reform is necessary. That gives me hope. Yeah, but I've heard that story before, right? I mean, what, what's to say that the reform will come these days just because we've acknowledged it? I mean, that's happened in the past. Don't be lulled by that. And so I agree with you. However, though, I don't think you've seen this convergence before. Mm -hmm. I haven't politically, but it's so easy to derail that with something else. Um, so you continue to push from the grassroots level. I'm a grassroots kind of guy. I even think there's a few dispensaries named grassroots. Um, <clears throat> but I think that that's the way to kind of advance it. And I think that the state and federal government will have to you know, catch up to us. Really change happens on the local level. I've loved being a local legislator and a local law enforcement elected official. Um, we really do make the greatest impact. State and federal change is so slow. And of all the organs of American government, the criminal justice system is the most inflexible. And that's why it's so important to really get into the trenches, roll up your sleeves, and do the kind of reforms that, you know, hell, we're doing. I mean, I'm the first sheriff in the United States to drop the visiting age from 18 to 16. No prison and no jail has done this. And my deputy unions are suing me over it, but that's cool, I'll, I'll win. Um, <clears throat> and that is because I believe that not only we've made a direct impact on the population that's in our custody, that I'm taking the bet to the next generation and working on the population of children of incarcerated parents. In the two and a half million people that are incarcerated in this country, over 50% are mothers and fathers. And so the children wait for them on the outside. And law enforcement, prisons and jails become that sort of negative force in the children's life. Well, I say we rewrite that entire, that entire role and that we don't be negative and that we be welcoming, especially to older children who need to prepare for reunification when their parents get out. And that's why I lowered the age. So just to be clear, if you have a son or daughter and you're incarcerated, uh, if they're under the age of 18 currently, they they can or cannot? They can, depending on the facility, depending on the, the county facility rules on contact visits, but they cannot go solo. And so for them to go solo, and when you're in your adolescence, you begin to become more sure. independent. You what feel, if they were a single parent to begin with? Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then I think you know they should have that latitude. I want them to feel that latitude and hopefully that instinct that they would follow up on to want to pursue a relationship with their parent and vice versa. So we don't stop there. We actually have co 
classes for the children, growing children, and for the parents. And then if there is no safety risk, we intersect them and they do it together while the parents still incarcerated. Mm, I see. And we're the and, first in California to do that. And you've done something similar with uh, the price of outgoing phone calls from... This from is another first for us. And I have to tell you, it feels very validating because last, ye- last week, less than a week ago, the FCC just instituted for the first time in the history of the country regulations on telecommunications industry because until now for over a century since the phone has been invented that any phone company that has been providing service to any prisoner jail has been completely unregulated. So when I came into office, we fired the phone company. Um, The rates were a 10 minute phone call would be an average of $10, so a dollar a minute. And that was on the low end compared to many other jail systems. And then we dropped the rates by 70%. And then by doing that and the brouhaha that it caused, um, I was invited by the FCC uh, over a year ago and I testified at the FCC. I was the only sheriff in the United States to testify on behalf of the FCC's um, then consideration of potential rulemaking that resulted in new regulations. Not a single sheriff in California, not a single sheriff in the United States uh, testified in behalf, they all testified against. And what was the perception from your peers? Well, then I'm not traditional, and I'm not. I'm not a traditional law enforcement person, even though I went to the police academy. I was a president of my police academy class. I'm the last elected official in San Francisco that's a military vet. Mm. There's not a single other elected that's a vet right now. So I have a paramilitary institution and an understanding of government in that way. But I'm left of center. And as a progressive, I really believe that the criminal justice system Um, more than really any of the American sort of limbs, uh, government limbs, really, you know, needs this, you know, insertion of thought um, to really help reform because we've gone through a century of failure, you know, in this system. And so I don't yield my ground, but I do my best in trying to be pragmatic and collegial and collaborative and, and work with and talk with and listen you know, to my colleagues. Mm-hmm. But there's some you know, good old boys and good old girls you know, who are sheriffs who you know, I, I think they're lightening up. It's not about just the old adage, lock them up and throw away the key. I think they get that. But what they need to institute beyond just getting it <clears throat> is the real substantive kind of programming that hones in on really making a difference in somebody's life because the goal is people don't return. And so it can be very threatening when I would, you know, walk around and talk to our deputy sheriffs. Can you imagine what it would be like if we shut down a jail? Do you know how intimidating that discussion is when generations have actually depended on, co-depended on the uh, thriving incarceration industry? And so to it's be a family business, it's a family business. Yeah. It is. And, and I don't say that sarcastically or no, cynically, no. but to un, you know, to sort of unhook that from that expectation, that's a transition. You know, it's like the peace dividend of when Bill Clinton in the mid nineties was president, he was shutting down military bases and the communities who for half a century, maybe more, their whole economy was dependent on that municipal military base. When you shut down the military base, the convulsions that reverberated in the cities that were around those bases, because their whole economy was based on that, what were they to do? Mm -hmm. So a conversion or peace industry 
needs to arc over into the thinking of what would happen if we start shutting down prisons and jails. Mm. Yeah, I have a similar example. I have a, a very close friend and his family is in the meat <coughs> distribution business. Uh, a big customer of theirs are uh, public jails, right? Uh, and so obviously the more prisoners there are, the, the bigger that order becomes, right? right? And you see that sort of conflict of interest there repeatedly, I think, over and over again, like you, ju you just described. And what's a dangerous trend about that is the privatization of prisons. Mm. Because the privatization of prisons is a per head count that really yields um, quite a sum on the very inmate, the prisoner, that then the private industry is able then to bring in. Sure. And that is not being discussed well enough, I think, in this country. Just like it's not being discussed well enough about the immigrants, the migrants that are coming over our southern border, and then the private camps that are being set up in southern United States that administers uh, to these, um, you know, to what people call undocumented. I want to get back to perception a little bit. So that's something that we talk a lot about on this show. Uh, you know, starting to debunk the stereotypes of uh, the classic stoner who sits on the couch and eats too much and all those things. Because uh, I'm a, a productive member of society. My team is a productive member of society, right? Anybody that smokes cannabis isn't necessarily a drain on society, right? And I wonder, among your peers, coming out as pro-cannabis, right? Uh, you proposed in 2009 for the legalization and cultivation and sell and all of that. Uh, how has that affected your relationship with other officials or uh, just executives in San Francisco, I wonder? Um. I think it's old hat okay. in San Francisco. Yeah. I think that they've known my record and where I stand, and I've been very clear about that. Um, <clears throat> 25 years ago, I actually was in Germany, and I was apprenticing with the Green Party, who just rose to power in some sharing of power in Germany, and then I came back to the United States to start the Green Party in California. Mm -hmm. So my politics are informed, I think, by um, alternative uh, responses to the mainstream. And then I think in the 80s and early 90s when I was coming of age and cutting my teeth on political activism, it was against what I thought was um, a one party with two right wing kind of um, reality in, in this country. And the Greens and a third party were kind of a response to it. Um, and part of that platform was a number of issues and initiatives that now Democrats today have you know, really made it their mainstream, and I'm really glad to see that. And I think that that's pretty much norm for San Francisco. Now, outside the borders of San Francisco, I think that those um, indicators <clears throat> of other cities getting it, even more conservative cities, are showing some light mm -hmm. on the question of better rehabilitation in jails, on the question um, of really do we have to incarcerate for marijuana possessions, which is just absurd, or narcotics, it's absurd, waste of resources. You know, I think they're approaching things in a more reformist level, you hope so. Mm -hmm. um, but that's about a political will, you know? Even if the wisdom is in place, it's really about political will. And sheriffs carry a lot of power. I mean, in this country, I mean, as old as the Constitution, I mean, the truism is that police chiefs are appointed and sheriffs are elected by the people. And we're one of the oldest forms of the criminal justice system 
And so while there is the stereotype of the sheriff with the horse and the gun and the hat and the badge, yep. all that is true. And you don't carry a gun. <clears throat> never I elect not to. Is, is that a weird thing? Do most sheriffs carry a gun? They do. They do. They right? do. I elect not to. And my predecessor why? didn't either. It did not. Okay. Yeah, so my predecessor, not I'm not the first. Yeah. yeah. And I did when I was um, in law enforcement for nine sure. years. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, but I elect not to. And if I choose to, then I'll have to practice and make sure that I'm able sure. to. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Is, is that a big decision? I mean, do, do people criticize you for that at all? I mean, I know there are traditionalists yeah. who... Um, there are traditionalists who feel that I should, and I should don the uniform every yeah. day, and I wear a suit. Um, you know, I mean, it's a great suit, by the way. Well, th it's a Macy suit. I got, but thank you, I appreciate that. That's a very people's <laughs> answer. I like that answer too. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm very curious about, like, honestly, I don't know what does a sheriff do all day. Like, you wake up, you put your suit on, no gun, and then, and then what? Well, um, in San Francisco, we're the only city and county in the state of California. So there's 58 counties, but we're the only of the 58 that's both city and county. So about 70 plus years ago, it was decided that the San Francisco Police Department, which is the larger agency, responds to the 911 calls and the public safety calls. And then it was decided that Sheriff's Department jurisdiction would be over jails or the bailiffs and the courts. We execute evictions like every sheriff in the country, um, and we provide that um, supplemental public safety to the police department. Um, <clears throat> but because um, my predecessor made rehabilitation the jails, uh, in addition to what our duties are, nobody's saying we have to do it, we've just taken that on. So that's actually part of my campaign in running for re-election, that I'm serious that our commitment needs to be uh, sustained and enhanced on rehabilitation as a response to improving public safety. I also believe now that our deputies can start doing patrol. And in the first time in the history of San Francisco Sheriff's Department, during this last three years in my administration, I have worked to get our deputies certified to do patrol. And that's a little, created a little bit of brouhaha. Mm -hmm. We're the last of the California Sheriff's Department's all 57 others have been credentialed for patrol. San Francisco never had, and now we are. <clears throat> and the police department treats it as if they've always had a monopoly. And <clears throat> for my days as a local legislator on the Board of Supervisors, I believe that that was always a myopic view, and that a proper city government, a mayor and others, should sit back and look at all the assets, public assets that they have, and how they can improve public safety. So, bottom line is, if people feel unsafe on Muni, on our Muni transit system, we'll ride Muni. If you're not getting a level of connection with law enforcement in your neighborhood, especially a neighborhood that might be underserved, um, I think you told me you lived in the Tenderloin for a year or something. I did. I mean, that's kind of a center of when many of these questions come from. I lived in the Tenderloin for more than a year, uh, and it was an amazing experience. I opened my eyes to so many things. I, quite frankly, I'm a white, rich kid, you know, and, and it was just an amazing opportunity to see what I saw as these sort of perpetual tra tragedies, right? So part of it is reincarnation, like you were talking about a little bit before, but part of it is just the, the homelessness epidemic. Well, let's get uh, into that in a second. But yeah. in the Tenderloin, which is really a pretty confined area, yeah. Yeah. and it's actually shrinking like bookends. Yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that show called The Wire. Yeah. Well, it's almost like a San Francisco version yeah. of The Wire. Yeah. That's how I look at it, and that might be an exaggeration. Yeah. but. But what you may have not seen, but you should have and or should have seen a lot more, is a, is a footbeat, is a cop walking a beat. I believe San Francisco is one of the most walkable cities 
for or policing anywhere in the country. Our weather is almost, I think, next to perfect. Um, especially lately. Especially lately. Climate change has been an upswing. Yeah. Climate change has been for San Francisco has actually you been took an upswing. Joke right out of my yeah, mouth. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but the drought, the drought. Let's not forget the drought. Um, but but that is. I do love almonds, so I hope that you know, it starts raining again. Smoke too. Yeah. <laughs> so you know. I believe that if they, if the other agency doesn't want to walk a beat, we'll do it. We'll ride Muni, we'll patrol in areas, but not in the best areas of San Francisco, right. in the most underserved or, or distressed areas in yeah. San Francisco. When I was on the Board of Supervisors, our city council, I represented the Fillmore, the Western Edition. And when I was elected in 2004, I inherited a community that had the second highest homicide rate unchecked for 20 years and I was just blown away my home too and I was just blown away how community and government and law enforcement just were resigned to accept that that's just the way it is mm. and I said bullshit mm. so sorry but you know so so you know I basically said that no we're going to really come together and force change and that included footbeats and levels of community policing that the city just if they did practice not in modern history right. And I believe as the deputy sheriffs, where other agencies might stop short, we can we can fill. So that's really what I'm what I'm pushing ahead. It, it seems like there's uh, a little bit of discrepancy because when I lived in the Tenderloin, uh, there was never enough cops around. Right? I don't know if that's a bad word to use cops, Pol policemen around at any given time. Law enforcement, sure. Law enforcement, sure. Uh, and then if you go to a music festival, you go to Outside Lands. It's covered with them. Do you know why? Yeah, no, I don't know why. Let me tell you why. Me, yeah. So we have a system called 10B, 10-B. And 10B is the way that anytime that there's an event, and San Francisco is blessed with many events outside. It could be the mom and pop neighborhood community festival right. where they close off a street. North Beach Festival. Or North Beach yeah. Festival, and it grows like the Hate Street Festival. It used to be my district, Hate Street Festival. They grow in size. They could be as small as just your block party or all the way up. The captain of the 10 district stations gets to, uh, the police department gets to decide how much mandatory protection you need. Outside lands commands hundreds of thousands of people. So then it's a number of the command of the police department that decides what the requirement is in order to provide the kind of safety net around that entire uh, event happening. And what's the formula like? Is it a certain <clears throat> they, law enforcement? There is a built-in formula based on a, um, a per grid uh, uh, intensity of people uh, and then other activity that's going on and then it's times two the rate of the police department oh, wow. so 10b stands for one and a half to times two of the rate of what an officer is paid and then it's the um, permit holder the host of the event that has to pay that rate so it's an expensive expensive rate not that they're not worth it but what I've offered is that we can help supplement that at 20% the discount mm. because our deputy sheriffs are actually less expensive than the police department. Why is that? Um, because the pay rates are just different. They've just were started differently decades ago and we do different things. But now that they've been credentialed for patrol, that equalizes the discussion, but the pay is not. So therefore it's a boon back to taxpayers that they have an alternative to choose from 
than just the monopoly of SFPD. Well, at least temporarily, right? I mean, those people are going to want to be paid similar if they're doing the same job at some point. Not necessarily. Sheriffs, again, are very different from police, and not that they shouldn't be paid more, but the goal is in a city that is having an affordability crisis, let's keep our eye on the prize. The eye on the prize is the city just not should be for rich people or for people who, you know, <clears throat> you know want to be the upper middle class. What made San Francisco special, uh, in my opinion, what brought me here 32 years ago was the populism of San Francisco, mm. the diversity of our economic classes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that a San Francisco without its blue collar and working class then really subverts what San Francisco was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's this huge disparity uh, continuing. Growing. Right? Growing. I mean, I'm, I'm part of, I suppose, the tech elite. You know, I have a day job and a startup. <clears throat> Very fortunate to be in the situation I am. But like I said, I lived in the Tenderloin for some time and I was uh, awoken to, to all of these tragedies. And it made me wonder, you know, I would see the same people on the street over and over again, you know, wandering around sort of aimlessly. Maybe they were on drugs. Maybe they're mentally ill. What, what do we do with those people? It's an excellent question and one that vexes me. It's very frustrating. And I have to tell you, I put some of this responsibility solely in the lap of the mayor. I'm not a fan in the way that I think... Um, and he we, doesn't endorse you as well. And he doesn't, he's not a fan of me either. <laughs> he did not support me when I ran for sheriff. I didn't support him when he ran for mayor. And we became sort of this uncommon marriage. But I haven't stopped writing to him and wanting to meet with him. But I've never met him. And so, yeah, not not in, in three, three and a half years. Wow. Yeah, it's a style of governance that I don't subscribe to. You're elected by the people to represent all the people. You need to get the job of the people done. You meet with everybody, whether you like or not like somebody. Being petty or cherry picking uh, who you want to affiliate with in government is a bad style in any government. And have you made uh, ample attempts to contact him? Or Even perfume sort of, uh... letters, yeah. I mean, I'm half kidding, but but yes, absolutely. And it's not the point. The job still gets done. Yeah, yeah. The job still very much gets done, but it's a style in where San Francisco is changing. So what we just talked about of a city, you know, becoming, um, you know, less inclusive and cost prohibitive, you don't want that to permeate in the style of City Hall. City Hall should be the great equalizer. Whether I'm rich or poor is not the point. The point is, is that you make this an opportunity, a place of opportunity for all. And I know that that's probably what the intention was when he was talking about bringing in the tech company and all that, and he was correct on that. But with all that prosperity, not all boats are lifted with the new economic wave. And so the consequences are not being well understood. And some of that is conspicuously, you see people everywhere that are homeless in San Francisco, more than I've ever seen in 30 plus years, and people suffering with mental illness. So what has happened in the last few years is, our go-to hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, it's our county hospital, and that is where if somebody is suffering a, um, you know, a psychiatric um, episode, some psychosis, suffering from some mental health uh, issue, typically a public health um, you know, sort of service or police will take them for treatment. Well, they've shrunk the beds by 70% in SF General, so they bypass the treatment in SF General, and now they just come into our jail. Mm. And that's dangerous because more it's more expensive, but it's also a 
cult, it's really a paradigm shift. I mean, ever since the Reagan administration, when Reagan was governor and shut down the state psychiatric hospitals, that really just propelled this massive mental health crisis in California over 30 five, 40 years ago, we're still living that catastrophe today. And you're effectively hardening these people as well, right? Well, that's not what we want to do. Oh, no, I, I understand. Yeah. But by, you know, skipping the hospital bed and putting them directly into that's prisons, right. the, the outcome is that they come out hardened and potentially of a criminal nature. Right? But I mean. the issue also is that our jails become substitutes for mental health hospitals. Mm. So if that's what the goal is, then be honest about that goal. And so that's what I've written to the mayor about and to members of the Board of Supervisors. Let's be clear, where are we going? But don't use it as a default, mm. just to sort of like deal with the inconvenience of an expedient problem. Mm. Got it. Let's switch topics a little bit. Uh, you're running for re-election November 3rd is, right. is the election. Uh, how's the campaign going? I mean, well, what does a campaign for sheriff look like? Strong campaign. It's very grassroots propelled. Um, raising money. I have to raise money and I'm proud to say that leaders and people who work in the cannabis industry have actually contributed to my campaign. I have two opponents. One of my primary opponents is very traditional law enforcement and you'll see law enforcement dollars going into my primary opponents in campaign including the bail bonds industry and I'm a big supporter in completely reforming uh, the bail system in, uh, in this country and state and in the city. And so what you do with the money that you raise and the people that you have on the streets is connect with voters and explain to them why it's important to retain um, arguably what I've been accused of as the, being the most progressive sheriff in the United States and why that's important you know to do this um, and you know and you get into the kind of the issues and discussion that we do here and and I think it's a gratifying experience to be able to talk to voters. Mm -hmm. So I go to Muni, BART stations in the morning, all sorts of, from all over the city, and meet people as they're going to work and as they're coming back, voters, residents, um, go to high pedestrian foot traffic areas, um, and talk with people, you know, and, and just really try to secure their vote. And I know my opponents are doing the same thing. And how much does that take away from your sheriff duties? I mean, Oh, I'm working over two full-time jobs right now. I mean, I'm a department head. The sheriff's department is over 1,100 people, so it's a sizable department. Yeah. My opponents are both retired, so they don't have that other function. And I have um, a family, a young family, and, and, and I'm a full-time campaigner too. So it's a real fine pirouette. Do you sleep much? No. You can't? No, that's no. probably why I'm talking to you like I'm on adrenaline or, you know. You look very yeah. fresh, man. Really do? Yeah, yeah. Thank I, you. You probably had six other interviews today. And you're, you're, I had three. You're killing three. Three. <laughs> well, are we the last? Is there one after us? No, or? you're the last. Oh, good. I'm no, no, it's good. every last drop from you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're welcome to. <laughs> so are there, like, polls for, for sheriff? Or, I mean, there is. How is there it? is. I'm it depends on which the... No, it's okay. I mean, I've seen some that show us at, you know, at a climb and others, you know, within hitting distance. So yeah. it's... You know, it's challenging because there's actually been, around me, there's um, been well controversial issues because I've been a controversial kind of sheriff and, yeah. and guy. And I don't, I'm not always, um, you know, in agreement with the Chronicle and the, the paper of record and they're not with me. In yeah. fact, they support my opponent and the San Francisco Examiner, this other paper, uh, supports me. So there is really kind of a, not a culture clash, but really a, a very vivid contrast of 
who the candidates are for sheriff. And I follow on the legacy of my predecessor, Mike Hennessy, who's endorsed me. Um, <clears throat> but we're populists, we're independent, and we're not beholden to law enforcement special interests. And that kind of bothers people. They think that the deputy unions should get to decide who they want as sheriff, and we completely disagree. Mm -hmm. So you touched on controversy a little bit, and your first term did have quite a bit of controversy uh, involved in it. How do you assure people that uh, something like that won't continue? You know, that that's all in the past and well, all those things. You know. Well, you want to always continue to show that you can uh, right wrongs and acknowledge mistakes and move forward. But, yep. you know, I, I do preside over the industry of second chances. Mm. And as sheriff, I, you know, I, I don't want people to forget that the power of redem redemption is not just me extending it to the people in our custody, but it may reflect on me as well and that I won't shy away um, from the mission objective of why I was elected, and I haven't, and I think we've well delivered on what it means to be an innovative sheriff, improve public safety, and just really keep us moving forward, and that's what I'm running on. But of course there will be, as I would expect, you know, my political opponents or detractors to try to capitalize on whatever they want to capitalize on, and then that becomes part of the contest. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, someone that has made mistakes in their life and has rebounded, much like someone that has been incarcerated but has come out and uh, be rehabilitated, I value that more than someone that has a sticky, clean background, which may or may not be the truth, right? Right. Uh, I'm, I'm right. a firm believer that no one is perfect right. uh, and that you need to uh, set out to do the job you have in front of you today. Right. Right. right? Um, I'm, I've certainly made mistakes in my past, and, right. and uh, I don't think anybody is, is any other exception. You know, I have discussions like this with inmates. Do you? I do. Okay. I would go meet with them and, and eat with them and um, and with our staff too. How's but the food in prison? Horrible. Horrible. Right? Yeah, absolutely horrible. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I've made that clear that I would like us to change vendor contracts. I actually am thinking about a startup. Wow. <laughs> we should talk. Oh, I don't know, wow. or somebody. But I'm serious. I think that. So if you have less prisoners, you can give them higher quality food. Well, right? That's the we product. actually have an organic garden, the largest in the in the entire city, okay. that is grown on our property. Okay. But they don't get to benefit from that garden because of rules that I want to see changed. They should get to benefit from the food that's grown. So it's, they grow the food, but they don't get they to don't. eat They don't. We oh, do. They're not allowed. But I want them to start growing the food. Sure. They always stopped many years before I came in as sheriff, and I want them to now start growing it and benefiting from it. What else do they do? Do they have work programs? I mean, what's a Oh, we do. I mean, we have our high school, which accommodates about 50% of the population, men and women. Mm -hmm. There are many programs that are designed for the reasons uh, and to the demography of who you are. So, for example, if you're a military vet, that has seen combat or not seen combat, but you've run afoul of the, um, the criminal justice system, you're incarcerated. We have a specialized areas for vets, deal with PTSD and other um, afflictions that may have helped cause their criminogenic behavior. For people that may have been both victims and perpetrators of violence, mm -hmm. um, we have another area for that, and there is all day uh, and evening, you know, the kind of interactive classes and therapy and programming and restorative justice programs mm. where the perpetrators really need to affirm the wrong that they did mm. with with their victims. Yes, we do. Mm. You brought up PTSD, which is interesting. There's this, uh, this uh, you know, pretty standardly held uh, conception that 
PTSD is great for, or cannabis is great for PTSD. That, you know, it sort of removes some of the nightmares and, you know, you, you're not quite as sensitive, you're a little more dull. Are you seeing anything like that? I mean, have you talked to anybody that... I have, that, and that, I'm a believer yeah. um, of the same theory. Yeah. I mean, I, I would give it a try. I would actually, when I was a supervisor, the subsequent laws that I wrote um, on the next tier of uh, really justifying the cannabis then the medical cannabis dispensaries, I wanted San Francisco General Hospital, our county hospital, which before Obamacare, we had our own sort of municipal universal healthcare program. I wanted them to dispense cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I was overruled by the city attorney because it is a class one <clears throat> federal violation. And they thought that we would lose grant money from the feds if we went forward with the law. I thought in the same way that San Francisco had certainly contested on the same-sex marriage rulings that we could on that as well too. But there wasn't the political appetite to take on the feds on that. Mm. <clears throat> and what would have extended, excuse me, what would have extended over is that <clears throat> for inmates suffering with PTSD and others that there would actually be through the eyes of the Department of Public Health some ability to determine how they would also benefit from medical cannabis. Mm. And we have yet to do that, but I haven't lost sight that that's something that I think we should begin to look at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and what do you think about sort of the future of cannabis, both in San Francisco? I mean, do we have a place <clears throat> to go? It seems like we're so enlightened in this way in a lot of ways. It's not legal yet, uh, but we're kind of in that semi-legal nature right now. Uh, what does it look like both uh, in San Francisco as well as in California? Well, I think substantively, <clears throat> intellectually, it's evolved, you know, light years in the last five years, yeah. in particular in the conversation. Yeah. And we have to think, I think, Washington State and Colorado State for that. Sure. Because I think what it's done in District of Columbia, because I think, and, you know, sort of other localities where we, didn't expect sort of medical cannabis, you know, to become decriminalized. And now <clears throat> it's put California on the sort of, uh, you know, on the bench to decide, are you going to step up yeah. and be next? And so I think the great talk is about 2016 of there being a statewide initiative and our former mayor, now Lieutenant Governor, who was, when he was mayor and I was a member of the Board of Soups, he was totally against all this on cannabis and everything else. Um, <clears throat> and had threatened to veto my legislation a number of times, but now that he is kind of a, a troubadour for, you know, let's figure out how cannabis becomes, I'm, I'm impressed by his evolution. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's the right direction, and I think that that is a bellwether, him like others, or a bellwether of where this issue is going, I think in California. What I hope it doesn't mess up, and because there's gonna be a lot riding on this, because there was an, it was a few years ago that <clears throat> I think that there was kind of a very clumsy attempt at legalization, I think called Prop 19. And Prop 19 failed at the state ballot. And it failed because it didn't have the kind of cohesion amongst the cannabis <clears throat> advocates and law enforcement and government and leaders and community and public health. It was very fractured. And so if something does go to ballot, which I expect it will, it has really got to be a big tent. And it almost has to be riding a consensus. And it has to be, so much has to ride on it that it's got to go into victory. Because if it doesn't go into victory, it could really be a number of steps backwards. How much of the debate is, uh, is fiscal versus moral at this point? 
I think it gets blended. Mm. I think that the fiscal debate wins, though. Mm. I think the fiscal debate wins. I think the the so-called immorality is being well um, dispelled, you know, and shunned for people to cast that while we're paying outrageous public health services for, you know, people who have an alcohol problem and and um, <clears throat> prescription drug problem and everything else that. You know, really saddles our public health system, um, and then marijuana is just enforced. You know, the laws that are enforced at such a wasteful, uh, yeah. you know, criminal justice tax dollars is just ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this stat, but in Colorado, for the first time, uh, tax <clears throat> revenue from cannabis has exceeded tax revenue from alcohol. I heard this. Yes, this is a fascinating development, yeah. in my opinion. I yeah. mean, that means there are so many people that previously were not consuming cannabis right. that now feel safe to do so. Uh, and, I, and by the way, most of that is non-smokables. Right. You know, most of that is edibles or tinctures right. or whatever. I mean, the the fiscal benefits seem so clear. That's why I ask why is it behind closed doors? Are people still anti-cannabis? Is this a politic like uh, politicians' movement? You know, I mean, uh, what? Well, no. I mean, I think yeah. it, I think there's something a little bit about America in general. I mean, fossil fuels, for example, until you know really recently, and still to this day, outpaced any kind of alternative or renewable energy movement that was well, <clears throat> you know, embraced by the Europeans and others decades earlier. I mean, so you can, it, it, it's really this, <clears throat> I think, obstinance uh, that gets uh, capitalized between either Democrats or Republicans or, you know, whoever has special interests because of their own economic interest in trying to keep bad habits alive. And I think that that's been true for this country in keeping bad habits alive because people get to capitalize on the misfortune of others. And I think that that's um, a result of a poorly regulated country. I'm a public interest kind of consumer advocate. And public interest consumer advocacy means proper regulations on behalf of the people and on behalf of the environment. And <clears throat> you know, I just think that that's a movement uh, that has really struggled to be uh, mainstream in this country. And I think if it was more mainstream, uh, we would be advancing these ideals uh, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I know another part of your platform is you're, you're uh, very concerned with gun control. I am. Uh, that's a, and as am I. Um, uh, is that a problem here still? I mean, I, I don't In San Francisco, in no. San Francisco. <clears throat> no, I mean, there was a tragedy um, that's been well known, and I've been in the eye of the storm, that um, resulted in the killing of Ms. Kate Steinle on Pier 14 um, in uh, early July, where uh, the defendant, uh, who's undocumented, found a weapon, shot the weapon, and that ended up killing uh, Ms. Kate Steinle. And the weapon that the defendant had either found or stolen was actually a gun of a federal agent from the Bureau of Land Management. And there's been a lot of that going on where there's been lost or stolen weapons from law enforcement because they didn't properly secure their weapons, which I think is a really significant problem. And that needs to be reined in in a very public way, but it's not. Um, But what happened is when this question about how we uh, facilitate our immigration, local immigration laws, as, a, as, um, as it intersects with federal expectations, ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement, was that the people at Fox News, like Donald Trump and others at the time, were seizing upon this and seizing upon me 
there were people from the NRA that were being interviewed and then they did some checking in my background and they realized that in the 58 counties of California, because the sheriffs, the power of the sheriff is, we're the ones who provide gun permits. Mm. And I, I didn't know this, so I learned this from them, that <clears throat> I'm the only sheriff in the state of California that's never given out a gun permit. Wow. So my number was zero. And they were just going crazy. And like, you know, we got to get rid of this guy. He's never given out. It's called a CCW. And that wasn't a conscious decision. It just <clears throat> never crossed your desk? or No, I wouldn't do that as a conscious decision. Like, you know, I'm going to do this. I mean, it's case by case. Yeah. But... I have a high bar and the sheriffs have a discretion of using that bar, that filter. But if you look at alphabetically in the way that they did the 58 counties, like for example, Amador County is a rural county, significantly less people than San Francisco, but they have thousands of permits, you know, and then they kind of go down the list and then there's San Francisco was zero and I had the least. So that gave fodder to like, we got to get this guy, he's pro-immigrant and blah, 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 this. And then of course he's gun control. Right. So my long answer to your question about gun control, I firmly and strongly believe in gun control. I think San Francisco <clears throat> may be, I don't know if it's necessarily an exception to the norm, but um, more cities need to be stepping up to the plate. I am, my wife and I, we have a six-year-old son. I'm still, you know, I'm just still so blown away by what happened at Sandy Hook over a year ago now, you know, the slaughter of first graders and their teachers and, and in other institutions. My God, that should have been... Once a month or so. Well, I mean, that should have been the yeah. wake-up call yeah. to just like, you know, I don't care what anyone else says. There should be gun control. Yeah. And if anything, there should be the most stringent background, background checks, especially with people with mental illness. And they talk about this as a good game, but nobody has coughed up any significant or substantive you know, lawmaking that backs those intentions up. Mm. So I'm, I'm very outspoken on this issue. And in San Francisco, it's not a big deal to people because it's not a big problem on gun control, though any guns that are out there, they're using the commission of a crime or illegal weapons anyway, because I haven't given any permits right, out. Right. So, so, so unless they're coming over the border from somewhere else, which is you know yeah. quite likely. Yeah. But, but it does give us the platform to say that, hey, you know, we're part of law enforcement here and the public safety has got to be protected. And if it means that we need a greater check on the um, flagrant, you know, access to guns, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So people talk a lot, right? They, oh. they talk about, oh, gun control. They talk about pro-cannabis. But right. millennials, we don't vote, right, by, well, by and large. And, How uh, can we change them? That, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Oh, no. I'm asking you. <laughs> How do we change that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, pro-cannabis is a good start, right? Okay. All right. Uh, I think that's a pretty good one. Uh, I, my question is more tied to, are we ever going to see a significant third party in this country? Oh, good I question. Mean, I mean, uh, no. Me. Okay. Yeah. Well, my friends, uh, myself included, were pretty fiscally conservative. And socially very liberal, right? Well, and and that's a combination that I don't see represented. I'm glad you're asking that question because I don't get asked that a lot. And this is something that goes in waves. And, you know, it's it's kind of a, dispress, a depressing, disappointing, but it was also the very question I asked myself when I was in Germany coming back to this country to start the Green Party that, well, maybe we can do it. Maybe we can propel that third party. And actually in many localities, in this country, Greens were getting elected, me included, when I first ran, I was 
part of the Green Party, and I'm a Democrat now, on municipal levels. And then when they decided to run Ralph Nader in 2000 for president and take on governor races and Senate races, it was way beyond the ability of the party itself. And then the party lost- In terms of resources. In terms of resources yeah. and just savvy. Mm -hmm. You know, it just wasn't, the country is unwelcoming of third parties. Of course, yeah. And so to your point is, no, because they're unwelcoming of third parties. The laws are not designed like in a parliamentary type system uh, yeah, or UK system, or, that's right, yeah. or 50% plus one, yeah. what have you. So it doesn't really invite that. But, you know, here's the challenge for the millennials. Get us a third party. <laughs> I mean, whatever the hybrid is or whatever the concoction may be, the country deserves it. It does. The fastest growing um, registration uh, classification is independent in, in this country. And that's because people just don't identify with either Democrat or Republican. But the Republicans look so bizarre these days that they're imploding that I think the default is the Democrat will win the presidential race anyhow. And you'll probably see a, probably a significant uptick of Democratic Party registrants because of that. So is that your prediction for the presidential election? Uh, yes, well? it is. And indeed. specifically? Well, I, I'm a Bernie person. Okay. I support Bernie. I'm, I'm the only elected official. Oh, please. <laughs> I actually worked on his first congressional campaign. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, I worked on his first congressional campaign. Very proud. Um, I knew of his politics when he was a very socialist mayor of Burlington. Yeah. And then when he ran for Congress, I thought it was just a great fit. Um, I don't think he goes all the way. I will help to make sure that he does. But I think he could be a very good... Um, part of the bartering system of what the ticket looks like, president, vice president. And who knows, maybe it'll surprise us. But I'm also just completely flabbergasted, shocked that Donald Trump has had such staying power. It makes me embarrassed well, for this country. we're a headline society. Oh, right? but come on. I mean, this is such, it makes me so embarrassed for this country. And then the next guy, their runner-up is Ben Carson. And people like him because he's just so, you know, it's just so, you know, that doctor soft tone, like a librarian. I like his delivery. Oh, his delivery is really like great. He says very much, but. Yeah. I don't know what he says. <laughs> I want to know what they say. And Carly Fariona has actually developed a lot because she ran for Senate here in 2010 against Boxer. I thought she was a horrible candidate. I have to tell you, she's actually improved the most. Um, I think I haven't really seen the others in this capacity. So I mean, I think she's got some power there. But I think the Republicans are just at a. I think they're just adrift. Mm -hmm. And I think so when you have Bernie, who's got substance, Hillary's got seasoning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's to the it's to the country's benefit. So Bernie's what your heart says. Mm -hmm. Who do you think's going to Well, I think Hillary takes it. Hillary, I think Hillary takes, takes it. it. Yeah, yeah unless something... It doesn't matter. That's it doesn't matter. And, she, you know, tip of the hat for Bernie for being out there at the debate and saying, I'm sick and tired of the emails. Yeah, who cares? It's right. Yeah. It's like, in whatever, yeah. in whatever. I mean, let's get on with the issues of this country. You know, and I, as much as... And the reason I switched from Green to Democrat in one way is because I wanted the Greens to embrace Obama in 08. Mm -hmm. And I wanted us to figure out a coalition together since that didn't happen in 2000 when Nader ran and when Gore was running but I thought that was the perfect time so that's one of the reasons I went uh, to Dem but I but I'm very much a believer in a very progressive progressive Democratic Party so what Bernie is speaking to speaks to me um, and I think Hillary's starting to pick up on some of that but I'll have to say the question you asked me earlier on gun control Bernie could have answered that a lot better than he did. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah, totally. Uh, so you're clearly not a typical candidate or current sheriff 
right? I mean, you don't carry a gun. We've been talking about weed for probably an hour at this point or so. Uh, it seems like you're you're faced with tremendous opposition, <clears throat> not just as a normal candidate would, but as a person, right? I mean, why do you want to do this? Why? What gets you out of bed in the morning to do this? Oh, because I I really know we're improving lives and we're improving public safety, and that it's not rhetoric, it's not propaganda. It really is the empirical evidence that we are, and you know, to be recognized by you know a preeminent institution like Harvard or any other awards that we're getting, it's because. In the criminal justice system, which has really been laughed and scoffed at and just, you know, um, rebuked over so many decades in this country, state, and even city, I feel like we can change it. And I really am that agent of change. And I think our administration is, and we'll deliver. We'll deliver on improving people's lives, improving public safety, and doing it in a way that this country just has not subscribed to in over a half century. And the indicator so far is my portfolio. It is. It, the reason why they personalize you know, whatever my mistakes are and really highlight that is because they don't want to talk about the content of what I've done. For example, when we won that Harvard Award, it was page 10 of the Chronicle. If my socks are mismatched, it's the front page of the Chronicle. <laughs> it is. It's the front page. Well, I have some cannabis socks I could give you if you want to mix it up with your socks. That would be above the fold headlines. <laughs> that would be above the fold headlines. And if those socks were edible, well, I mean. <laughs> well said. Well said. Ross, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much Thank for you. being here. Can I give you a website or anything in case people plug, want plug to? everything. Yeah, oh, give, all right. Give well, you, uh, so I. Yeah. I'm running for re-election. The election is November 3rd, 2015. Yeah. Please tell your friends to vote uh, re-elect Sheriff Ross Mercurimi. That's me. And if you want, our campaign headquarters is on 24th Street in the heart of the you know, the gentrification war, frankly. It's uh, Mission in 24th. We have less than seven days down to the election. So come volunteer, get involved. We would love donations and go to um, Ross, my sheriff, is that it? Ross for sheriff dot org. Ross for F-O-R, sheriff dot org. And you can make a donation online and get a hold of us. But we'd love to see you. And I have a Twitter. Twitter is, Thank you, uh, let's see, I have it here. At Ross underscore Mir Karimi, just like your name. M-I-R-K-E-R-I-M-I. Yep. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And, yeah. and best of luck to you. Thank you yeah, so Congratulations much. Yeah. on your success. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm so lucky to talk to really interesting people that want to talk about my favorite subject all the time. <laughs> and, uh, it's very cool. Guys, you heard it right here. Get out there on November 3rd and vote. Whether you vote for Ross, I mean, obviously as a show, we hope you do that. Uh, but the important thing here is that local government does matter. I hear so much that, oh, I'm not going to vote because in California, the Democrats always win and it's a wasted vote. Well, yeah, that's for president. But there's real shit that matters on the local level here. Uh, and that's why you got to go vote. And you can vote up other ways too, right? You can send it in if you want. Vote by mail? Yeah. Why vote. can't we vote online? Like, why can't I vote on my phone? Oh, I think, I think that that's, that's going to happen. That's shit, man. I, I, my prediction is for local elections, the precinct ballot voting is probably going to become extinct. Uh -huh. And it will either go to online or vote by mail. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I mean, it's kind of crazy because you would get, uh, I'm sure, a huge uptick. Well, if you could vote on the toilet, you know, I, like it'd be over. I agree. Or, or just, you know, just make it, incentivize the voting. Yeah. Just incentivize it. I feel like there's so much voting. Like gamify it? Like we have like points? That's for, a good point. Yeah. Like It's right. It's yeah. like coupon. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's so much voter suppression in this country, especially in people of color communities. Yeah. So, I mean, we really do need to look at that and then do something about it. But in San Francisco, we're, I think people like to believe we're a little more 
uh, in touch and enlightened, but they're predicting low voter turnout for this election, which worries me. Our mayor, whether you like him or not, I think it's a mistake that he's uncontested in a substantial way. There are some good people that are running this, you know, trying to give a good contest, but I mean, there isn't a well-funded candidate. So I think that for a city like ours, where democracy has been, I think, well um, showcased for a municipal democracy, it's not happening. It's just not happening. So my race is the contested race. Got it. Good stuff. Well, thanks so much again. It's pleasure. been a real pleasure. Thank you. And uh, yeah, everybody, we have a brand new website. You can go check us out, investingincannabis.tv. Uh, .tv is kind of a cool That's, extension, That is right? pretty it's pretty cool. slick. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is not TV, but we kind of like pretend it is. You know, that's, like Hulu, I'm cannabis really TV. I'm not really I just play one on TV. Yeah. You know, uh, You're doing good. <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks for watching, guys. I'll see you next time.